following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. How are we doing this morning? Feeling good? Amen. Praise God. I'm excited to walk with you guys through this passage of Scripture. Let me tell you out of the gate, we're walking into some turbulent waters. Turbulent, turbulent, turbulent waters, all right? I'm not going to even not gonna even deny that, okay? And so, and so one of the reasons that we're walking into turbulent waters is because this is a uh, this is a passage that draws out for us an a element that has been very controversial in Scripture, okay? All right, and, 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 the, and, and, and that element is the element of wine. Hello. So one of the things I got to do is I got to work through that element first before I even really get to the, the passage, of the, te- uh, the passage and, and, its, and its significance and its meaning, okay? Because, because how I perceive that element very much ties into how the passage is perceived, believe it or not, all right? Um, this is what I promise you, all right? I, I promise you that the passage doesn't take that long to unpack, but our thoughts about this element will, Okay? And so we're going, to spend a little, we're going to spend way more time unpacking this element than we will actually spending time unpacking the passage, all right? But I think it's going to be helpful, and it's going to be beneficial, and it's going to serve us. All right, so there's two things I want to talk about this morning. One is the controversy of this passage, all right? The controversy of this passage. In other words, there are some jars that are mentioned, six total, right? Six total. What we have to ask ourselves this morning is what is in those jars, Right? I mean, we know what the word is, wine, but what's really in them? Is it, is it wine? Is it, is, it, is it Welch's? Is it sparkling cider? I mean, what, what, what's, what's in there? What, what's in the jars? Because what's in the jars means so much to Christianity right now. It means so much to SBC life and Southern Baptist life, Right? So we gotta ask that, we gotta ask that question. So we're gonna ask the question, what's in the jars? We're gonna talk about the controversy in this passage. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about the actual point of this passage. All right? So two points this morning. Point of the passage, controversy of the passage. So, Southern Baptists, all right? All right, I'm one of them. And we really and truly cannot agree, okay, on what's in the jar. And it ends, up, it ends up taking a text like this in a million different directions. So, so, some, so some Southern Baptists over the past um, century or so um, have carried a very firm, conservative, straight-line, teetotaler um, position or approach to this. And teetotaler, if you don't know what that means, complete refrain and abstinence from alcohol. Perceiving alcohol, even some teetotalers will go as far as to tell you that even the ideal of alcohol and drinking alcohol or wine in particular is sinful. Many of our seminaries, many of our mission boards carry abstinence, teetotaler commitments in them. 
And it causes some of us from, from, from different perspectives of the world to do some very interesting things with this text. And some of the things are outside of the bounds, I believe, of helpful exegetical methods in Bible study. In other words, oftentimes we allow, um, we allow, we allow convictions to shape a text rather than letting a text shape convictions. So if you join City Light Church, then you know by now that we use a very old school, the one we just read, a very old school, a very traditional Baptist covenant as the established basis by which all of our members agree to do and share life together. However, if you are old school, and you know that covenant, and that covenant hung in your grandmama's church somewhere in a corner, then you know that there is some things in that covenant that you read. You say, wait a second, that's different from what grandmama had on the covenant. And this is in particular what's different. We revise some of the language as some of the other churches have, and it says this, we also engage we also engage to abstain, this is the original language, we also engage to, to abstain from the sale and use of intoxicating drink as a beverage and to be zealous in our efforts and to advance the kingdom of our Savior. All right? That's the original. This is what we have in City Lights Church Covenant. I want you to listen. We also engage to seek God's help in abstaining from the abuse of any substance or the practice of any activity which Scripture calls foolish, brings unwarranted harm to the body or jeopardizes our faith or the faith of others. Now, one doesn't have to wonder what's been changed, right? You don't have to, you don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to think about it. What's been changed? There's something that's been changed, and there are some very specific reasons why it has been changed. Now, what I want to do is I want to get into the historical and the biblical reasons for why it has been changed, and, and even the reasons found in this text. And then I want to move from that position to make sense out of John's first recorded sign of Jesus and its particular significance to his church and our church this morning. So let's talk history, all right? In 2006, during the Southern Baptist uh, Annual Convention, a very strong resolution was passed um, um, pushing for a more reserved outlook on alcohol that was far more, far more leaning to the side of complete and total abstinence than moral restraint and self-control. And so after re resolution was passed on, um, the resolution committee members, one of the resolution committee members said and was quoted as saying that Southern Baptists have always stood for total abstinence. And so this resolution moves us further in that direction. Now, sometimes when you hear such definitive statements like that, you and I tend to just automatically accept them and think that they're true. The Southern Baptists have always been for total abstinence, or at least the majority of Southern Baptists have always been for total abstinence. According um, to an article written by Bruce Sabins, though, they are not. Those words are not true. I'm quoting Bruce Sabins here. It says, he says this, in the history of Christianity, alcoholic prohibition is actually a relatively new idea. In fact, alcohol was a normal part of life in the colonial America, for example, the Puritans expected Christians to drink. As a matter of fact, when the Puritans landed the Plymouth, or rather when they landed on Plymouth, one of the things that they wrote and they recorded in the journal is that the reason they landed on Plymouth and that they didn't go a little further was because they were running out of a few things. One was victuals, food. The other thing that the Puritans were running out of was brewski, beer. 
Hello. Puritans, okay? The Puritans. So, so let's start with them. And then during the 1800s, many Southern ministers operated steels and sold alcohol. In the 1800s, parishioners who owned steels would tithe their alcohol, and preachers' salaries often would include whiskey. Southern ministers, Baptist ministers would tithe whiskey. Whew, amen, Brian. It's, it's going to be quiet in here this morning. For Southern Baptists, too, alcohol was a part of life. That, that is until the temperance movement began to infiltrate the religious denominations in America. So the temperance movement of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, which led to the Prohibition Act and Amendment, which was the 18th Amendment. Somebody talk to me, any historians in the room? The 18th Amendment, Prohibition Act, was passed in 1920. So there was a period of time that colonial America, frontiers in particular, and that's where Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians were making their, their rounds. There was a particular time where alcohol was used as a means to type of uh, type of means to kind of cure and cure illnesses, and also to you know as a a substitute to to bad drinking water and and things of that nature. And what ended up happening? Okay, well, hold on. Let me let me not get too far ahead of myself. So, a Baptist historian by the name of Bill Leonard who spoke after the 2006 annual convention that I quoted just a second ago, also acknowledged that the particular statement about SBCers always believing in teetotaler was actually not true, just like Bruce Sabins mentioned. So Bill Leonard, who was a dean at Wake Forest Divinity School, said this about it in an article entitled Baptist History on Alcohol, Not Totally Teetotaling. He said this, quote, it's not true. What's not true? The fact that Baptists have always believed that, you know, alcohol is sinful. It's not true. The temperance movement was late but very thorough among Baptists in the South and other Protestants as well. Early on, many Baptists used spirits, and we ain't talking about the holy one. We're talking about spirits, all right? Some even brewed beer. Leonard has studied the history of the temperance and the prohibition movements that sought to curb or ban alcohol consumption in the early 20th century and the late 19th century. So Leonard, at the time, like I said, the dean of Wake Forest Divinity School, goes on to speak about Elijah Craig. Anybody know Elijah Craig? Anybody? Okay. A few folks in the room. Elijah Craig was a Baptist minister in Kentucky who was widely considered the inventor of a very, very, very famous uh, type of alcohol. Does anybody know what that alcohol is in Kentucky? You don't have to raise your hand because we don't want to incriminate anybody, but Kentucky bourbon, all right? So Elijah Craig even has a bourbon named after him as a Baptist minister. Leonard also said in the article that Baptists and Methodists and other revivalist Protestant sects were most common on the American frontier. And again, as I mentioned, on the American frontier, liquor was a common social beverage due to the harsh conditions, the water quality, and frequency of disease common to pioneer life. However, the wide availability began to create some concerns because the wide availability led to significant abuses around the 1830s. Alcohol began to be found at the root of many of the demonstrations of general lawlessness amongst folks. 
marital and family issues, abuse, spouses. And so both the liberal and the conservative churches and other organizations began to join forces to think about how to eradicate the problem, which led to the prohibition movement in the passing of the 18th Amendment in 1920, outlawing the sale of alcohol, manufacturing, transporting alcohol. Problem solved, right? Anybody know, anybody familiar with the prohibition movement? How long did it last? Like a decade. Do you know why? Because when the prohibition, prohibition movement was passed, along came moonshine, bootleggers, right? Organized crime increased. Why? Because, of pro, because now that it's unlawful, they just find other ways to transport and manufacture and distribute, and it increased crime rather than decreased crime. So the government got together again and said, this is chaos, and they passed the 21st Amendment. The 21st Amendment basically banned or dismissed the 18th Amendment. Now, here's what's interesting about the whole time period many of the biblical arguments for teetotaling sprung forth from during this movement. They mostly sprang forth as a response to a movement. In other words, they saw that, hey, this is really destroying families, so we need to do something, all right? And what are we going to do? We're going to remove alcohol. That's what we're going to do. We're going to push alcohol out, okay? And now that we pushed alcohol out, well, we need to figure out what the Bible says about pushing alcohol out. And so they begin to frame discussions and begin to frame arguments from the Scriptures to, de- so, to justify the decision to prohibit alcohol outright. In fact, one of the great supporters of the SBC's position during the 2006 annual convention or somewhere in that time frame admitted that biblical support for abstinence was an afterthought. Christians had decided for social reasons that alcohol was wrong, and only then did they turn to the Bible to actually find their support for it. Now, this reaction troubles me for a lot of different reasons, okay? One of the reasons that it troubles me is because this is the same logic that was applied to the curse of Ham that Baptist churches used to respond to slavery. Does that make sense? So when slavery was being justified and argued for, and the Southern Baptists broke loose from the National Baptist denomination in order to continue slave, uh, slave trading and slave keeping, one of the things that they had to do is they had to give biblical grounds and justification for it. So they went back to the Bible, and somebody dug up some old theories and some old speculation about the curse of Ham. And they said, that's it. That's it. The curse of Ham. The curse of Ham is why black folk should be slaves of white folk, because black folks are destined to be slaves. They're destined to be underneath us. Now, here's the problem with the curse of Ham. Biblically, it doesn't exist. It's completely bogus. It takes, it takes 10 minutes to debunk the curse of Ham. But guess what? Once you, get, once you start down that road, you still have churches today that teach the curse of Ham. Does that make sense? and practice it and believe it and tell their young white daughters or their young white sons that you can't marry them because they're cursed. Does that make sense? So that's where the first problem comes in is that we don't take the Bible and move the Bible in the direction as a, in order to address a response. We let the Bible determine how we should respond. Are you tracking with that? Now, 
It was pretty easy to justify this response because in the 1920s, it was completely outlawed. So churches, in obedience to the law of the land, said, all right, no more alcohol, period. There were provisions made to some churches that they could still have their wine for communion. First Baptist of Savannah, Georgia, had wine that they served in communion all the way up until the 1920s when they prohibited wine from being served, and then finally they pulled it out. First Baptist Church of Savannah, Georgia. And other Baptist churches, but First Baptist is just one example that we know of for sure. But once the prohibition moved, people in the Baptist churches, fundamentalism came along and they kept the standard of no alcohol. Does that make sense? And they began to preach it as any partaking of alcohol is sinful. The easiest way to lose grasp on Scripture is to build a position and, don't, and then go back to Scripture to justify it, to work backwards rather than let Scripture push you and propel you forward. We find ourselves forced into certain positions, right? Find ourselves forced into positions like telling black folks that they are cursed into slavery during the Chateau slavery era. Find ourselves in bad positions like telling people during the temperance and prohibition era that Jesus was not making wine, but Jesus was making grape juice. This leads to our discussion biblically about alcohol. Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15 says this. Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine, to do what? To gladden the heart of man. You say, well, what kind of wine? Same kind of wine that, that Noah drank. Anybody know the story of Noah? When he got a little too, too filled on wine? That kind of wine. The same kind of wine that Psalms urges us against. We're reading the Psalm that says, hey, this is a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. Same kind of wine that we find in the prophets that can be a good thing, but also can be a bad thing. Proverbs 3 and 9 and 3, 9 verses, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your first fruits, all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with what? Wine. Isaiah 25 and 6, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged, what? What? Let me ask you a question. Does grape juice, do you think about age when you think about grape juice? Does anybody in the room think about age and say, man, yeah, 1920s right here, Woo, you know? No, nobody in the room thinks about age when you think about grape juice. The only thing you could possibly pull from this is that he's talking about wine. Now, this is what he says. Well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will sw- swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over, pe- over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach, reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There's also passages in Jeremiah that talks about wine. See, the Scriptures, believe it or not, did not just see wine in a negative sense. 
The scriptures actually saw wine as God's blessing oftentimes on a land. And so if you completely go this route, you get into trouble when you come across these scriptures. You're like, well, what does this mean? How can this be God's blessing, that he's blessing us with food and blessing us with wine? Let's continue. Luke chapter 7, verse 33 through 35 says, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let's talk about that. John the Baptist eating no food, drinking no what? Wine. Jesus comes eating and drinking. What is he eating and drinking? Food and grape juice. No, that, that's, that's not what the text said. John the Baptist comes eating and drinking, or doesn't come eating and drinking, right? We say he has a demon. Jesus comes eating and drinking, the same thing that John was not eating and the same thing John was not drinking. That's why he's accused as being a drunkard. Does that make sense? And so, not that he was a drunkard, but that he was accused as being one. Why? Because what he was drinking could, in fact, make one drunk. Let's continue this. What about the Nazarite vow? The Nazarite vow, anybody know the Nazarite vow? Samson, the Nazarite, was, was given a vow that he, he had to grow his hair, but also he could drink no wine, right? He could drink no strong drink. And some people say, well, that, in fact, that is applied to the New Testament Christian. The Nazarite vow is what we should all take because that represents holiness. Okay, well, let's go there. This vow required the person to abstain from wine, wine vinegar, grapes, raisins, intoxicating liquors, vinegar made from such, such, from such substances, and eating or drinking any substance that contains any traces of grapes. All right, let's go. Nazarite vow. Anybody? Let's go. No? Okay. All right. That was the Nazarite vow. Does that make sense? Not just simply the substance of wine, but the substance of anything associated with grapes, vinegar included. And you had to grow your hair. Anybody, any fellas ready to do that? Let's go. Long hair. Anybody in? Ethan. Ethan, say he's in. <laughs> what about the ideal of the wine not having much alcoholic content? Say Jesus did make wine. Certainly Jesus' wine wouldn't have any alcohol in it, right? That's what some tell you. That's what, you know, some have told me. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. They, have, they are talking about the right way to practice the Lord's Supper, the right way to practice communion. Okay, and one, of the, and one of the things that they talk about here is this idea of drink. Now, Paul is saying that, hey, what, I, what I'm giving you, the practice that I'm giving you, is the practice that we received from Jesus on the night when he was betrayed by Judas. All right? He took the bread, and then he took the cup, fruit of the vine, as they call it. Okay? This is what Paul says about that particular practice of the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What just happened there? What just happened there, folks? Did you hear that? Paul said that some of y'all are coming together to take part in the Lord's Supper. Some of y'all are getting so full that there's no food left for anybody else to eat. And some of y'all are getting drunk so that there's no drink left for us to partake in the supper together. Now, notice what Paul does not do. Paul does not correct them on the fact that they were drinking wine. He corrects them on the fact that they drank all the wine and got drunk and nobody had the opportunity to partake wine alongside them as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You tracking with that? He doesn't say, what's going on? What what are y'all doing? Who brought wine to the Lord's Supper? Who brought wine? That's not what he says. That's that's not even in Paul's radar. It's not even on Paul. That's not even in Paul's perspective as he's thinking about it. What he's thinking about is the fact that you took the wine that was brought and that you have completely made a mockery of the supper by drinking it all and getting drunk when other people haven't had one single swallow to partake in. Wine was not unusual in the Lord's Supper. It was practiced very much and very regularly all the way up until the 19th century in America. That's why when you go to some places in, the other, pla- in, in other parts of the world, you'll see that even though us Americans will be like, what, y'all drink wine? They're like, what are you talking about? What's the big deal? Because it was a response to American prohibition in particular. Now, there are some pockets and places where it was other things involved, but in, in particular in America life, in American life, it was a response to prohibition in the temperance movement. So turn up, right? <laughs> Bottles in the air. Let's go. No, 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 no. All right? No, no, no. That's, that's, not, that's not the response. That's not, that's not, that's not the response, okay? <laughs> right, right, right. I, I don't want anybody walking out of the door. Yeah, Pastor Brian, man, he said, let's go, man. You know, happy hour tonight, you know, right before Missional Community. No, that's not, where, that's not where we are going with this text, all right? That's not at all where we're going with any of this that we just unpacked in terms of talking about this controversy. Because the Bible clearly and, and outrightly condemns drunkenness. Talks about strong drink in Proverbs being a brawler with men. In other words, it fights you and it, and, and it, and it, and it batters you and it beats you and beats you into submission. Paul tells the Ephesians to not be drunk on wine, but instead be filled with what? The Spirit. Does that make sense? And so there's this ideal of drunkenness, there's this ideal of wine. There's this spectrum that we operate in, and and what's in the middle? How do we get to the middle, right? Well, Paul talks about in Romans, in Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 20 and 23, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whatever, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's the thing. Two things that guide, uh, guide us in this understanding of alcohol and wine. One is, is that 
drunkenness is completely off the table. Because God always wants you in complete control of your faculties, and God always wants you to be satisfied not in the food, not in the wine. He wants you to be ultimately satisfied in him, which is why not only does he, not only does he despise drunkenness, but what else does he despise? Gluttony. Hello, right? Southern Baptists, we're fully aware, we're fully aware of the drunkenness part. Gluttony part, we're kind of like, yeah, let's keep that down. Keep that on the low. You know what I mean? Let's not talk about that. But both of those things are important to God because where do you find your satisfaction? Do you find it behind the, uh, behind the bottom of a bottle or do you find it behind the bottom of a plate or do you find it at the throne of Jesus Christ? That's what's important, okay? But the second rule in terms of what, how do we think about alcohol is the rule of Romans 14, which is if it causes brothers to stumble. If it causes brothers to stumble. And so he says, listen, it's not sin. Paul says that. To drink wine is not sin. Paul says that to eat food, certain kinds of food. But if it causes brothers to stumble. And so here's what we mean. If you're at Applebee's and you're hanging out with friends, and you know there's friends amongst you that struggle with alcohol. You don't say, hey, man, let's get another one, you know. Let's get another one over here. It's not how you respond. It's not how you operate. If you invite friends to your house, you know you got friends that stumble over this. You know you got friends that stumble and say, okay, listen, you know, man, I got some battles here, all right? And you don't put those battles in front of them to wage war in front of them, all right? And also, if you got some friends that are like, hey, man, I don't even believe you love Jesus, you know? Then you don't say, well, yes, I do, and watch me order another one. You know, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how you respond to this, okay? You don't, you, don't, you don't respond in that way. You care for your brother. You care for them enough that you sacrifice even in this particular area of freedom that you feel like you have. It's the reason why, for example, me and my wife, you know, it's not like you, you guys are going to ever see us turn up, right? Because we have decided, okay, listen, that's not, it's not, you know, we're going to keep that away from y'all. We're not even thinking about that, right? That's not something we can put on the table because it's just too many people ready to stumble over it, all right? So we're just not putting it on the table at all. This is a passage that I don't want you to preach from a position that says, let's run off and just go do whatever we want to do now. That's not the way this passage is supposed to be taken. That's not the way this talk, this sermon, this message is supposed to be taken. So, if this is wine that Jesus is making in John chapter 2, and this wine has the, ten, or the propensity, the possibility rather, to actually get people drunk, is Jesus encouraging drunkenness? Is Jesus setting up temptation? Well, I don't know. Was Jesus setting up temptation when he took two fish and five loaves of bread and he multiplied it to feed thousands of people? And when it was over, there was 12 baskets full left? Was Jesus setting people up for the gluttony fall then? 
I don't know. When you, when you go out and you take your rifle and you go to the, to the shooting range or you go to the hunting, hunting grounds to shoot a few deer, kill a few deer, are you setting up temptation for somebody to steal your gun and go and mass murder people? I don't know, for those of us that are married and that love marriage and love it a whole lot, and you know what I mean by that? Maybe some of y'all, y'all know know what I mean by that? I hope some of y'all know what I mean by that, right? You love it a whole, whole lot, right? A whole lot. You engage in practices to demonstrate how much you love it, right? Are you setting up temptation for those that are not married to go and do those things as well? For those of us that need to take medicine for any reason, you setting up temptation for overdoses? For those of us who need to say something, that need to speak something, are you setting up temptation for people to speak ugly and harshly? Here's what I'm, here's what I'm getting at. What you have to understand is that there is no good gift that God has ever provided us that we won't take it and exploit it, distort it, and destroy it. None. None. And so the answer very rarely is take that good gift and put it off the table. Doesn't, does, let, let's put it away. Because if we put it away, then, then we'll walk right. That's what people think. If we take it off the table, take it away, take it completely away, then we'll walk right. All right, let's take sex away. Keep, let's go. Too many people doing immoral things. Let's take it away. Let's push it off. Guns, let's take them, push them off, no more. Medicine, who needs it? Speech, who needs it? We don't even need to talk anymore. Just push, take it, push it off, it's gone. Even, even, because the atheists will argue this, you know why the world's messed up? Well, why is it, Mr. Atheist? Because of your religion. Your religion has enslaved your religion has caused more war, which is not true, by the way, but your religion has caused more wars than anything. Your religion, your religion, your religion. If we didn't have your religion, we would be perfectly fine. We would actually be able to do good things if your religion was off the table. So how do you respond to that? Well, you're right. Let's, let's, pro, let's prohibit, prohibit religion then. No, you don't respond like that. You say no. Religion can be used for the good. The faith that we have in Jesus Christ obviously can be a glorious thing, but in the tool, but in the hands of a man or a woman who decides to wield it for wicked purposes, it can destroy. Why? Because the problem is not our faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is us. So, yeah, you, you, you know, take all of the good things off the table, but you can't take us off the table. And that's the issue. You can't take us off the table. If you get rid of everything, you still have us. We're still here. We're all in our manipulative, sinful, self-deceiving, self-serving glory. Still here. <laughs> Listen, folks, we messed up Eden. You think if you prohibit alcohol, that's going to stop us? 
We messed up the Garden of Eden. There's nothing off limits to us. You can, give us, you can give us a box of Legos, and if you leave them there long enough, we'll figure out some way to stab somebody with them. Our hearts are wretched and in much need of God's medicine, otherwise known as his spirit, to transform us. You can take whatever element off the table you want and still doesn't reckon with the problem, which is us. Every single one of these good and righteous gifts were given within the confines of a wise and good God and with a desire to bless his children, and yet every single one of them can be distorted by the evil one. Every single one of them. All right, so let's close this thing out with the point of the passage. John chapter 2, verse 1, we still paying attention at this point? What's the point of this passage? First of all, Jesus is here. The third day there was a wedding, verse 1, at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Jesus is here. He's present. He's present. He is signing off on weddings and signing off on celebrations. That means something. He is present to celebrate alongside these folks. That means something, as we'll, as we'll say in just a second what it really means. But when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, which by the way is not, a, not it, you know, it's not the kind of, it's not the same way. Woman, don't see woman the way you would respond to your, your mom, okay? Woman doesn't carry that same level of disrespect in this particular context, all right? So don't see it the same way and don't go home and when mom talks to you, even say woman. Not a good look, not good, not a good look in our day, all right? But in Jesus' day, it was okay. So he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. That's an interesting conversation right there. Because Jesus says, listen, it's not my time yet, but, but, mom, but mom is like, Jesus loves me, right? Jesus loves me. And so he's going to respond. But also, Jesus is doing something here. And so even though it's not his time to be completely shown or completely unveiled to the world, He's showing the world something in this moment. And so his mother doesn't even say another word. She just says, do whatever the man tells you to do. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So here's the thing. Jesus is there to fill out the emptiness that was present. And the emptiness does not get filled out without his presence. Does that make sense? Without him being present, the emptiness doesn't get filled out. So they need him in this moment. And not only does the emptiness not get filled out without his presence, notice what he uses to fill it. He takes the six jars that were set aside for the Jewish rites of purification, and he says, hey, put some water in, we're going to make wine in them. Now, that's really interesting when you think about the fact that these jars were considered the jars that you would use to clean your hands for the ceremonial so that you would be 
cleansed, that the ceremonial unclean would be cleansed. And, you, if, if, and if you think for a second that this wasn't intentional, Jesus does a similar thing in Matthew chapter 7, well, Mark chapter 7, when his disciples decide that they're not going to wash their hands before they eat, and everybody gets into a frenzy. Hey, what are you doing? You're not clean yet. You're not clean. And Jesus draws out the point that, listen, it's not, hey, it's not, it's not the fact that I wash my hands that makes me clean. Does that make sense? So he takes the jars that are usually used for cleansing. He says, hey, give me those jars. Let's put some water in. We're going to make some wine. You don't even need those jars to clean your hands. I'm the one that cleanses you. Are you tracking? So we're going to put wine in these jars. We're going to make wine in these jars. In other words, the law, the law of Jewish ceremonial rites is present, but grace is present all the more. Does that make sense? Grace is there. And because grace is there, we don't need those jars anymore. We're going, to have a, we're going to use those same jars that we use to uphold law, and we're going to make a celebration out of those jars. But fourthly, he's there because he is bringing joy where, in fact, there could be sorrow. So the wedding feast or the wedding festival in Jewish culture in this particular narrative probably lasts about a whole week, okay? It wasn't just like a one-day event where, you know, you throw every single dollar that you own and you put it into that one moment, right? Nobody do that. Please don't do that. Save your money, all right? You can find other ways to do weddings. But what ends up happening in this particular context is that they normally have a wedding festival that stretches all the way through the week. And so, not only does it stretch all the way through the week, but they expect to have wine all through the week. And when you, do, when you run out of wine in this culture, it is considered shameful. Shameful. And so, this is a big deal, which is why Jesus' mother presses in on them, because this is considered a big deal, that they have and receive wine. And you guys know that. I mean, you've been to some weddings, and by the time you get to electric slide, right, people are looking for a glass of wine. And if you don't have wine, it's people who are like, okay, what's going on, man? What kind, of, what kind of party is this? What kind of wedding is this, you know? And so think about the fact that this was even more shameful in this culture than it was in other cultures. I mean, than it was in our culture. And so Jesus takes what is a symbol of joy, celebration, and festival, wine, he says, give me six jars, put 30 gallons, 20 to 30 gallons of water in each, each and every single one of them. All right? Now, go, get it. And John Philippe goes, and he, he you know, the servants bring the, bring the wine to John Philippe. Anybody know who John Philippe is? Hell's Kitchen? Anybody ever seen Hell's Kitchen? Chef Ramsay? Chef Ramsay has a guy named John Philippe. Jean-Philippe is like the maitre d'ine or whatever. He's like, he's like the, the head waiter. He's the, he's the guy that takes care. He's the guy that's running the show and taking care of all the other waiters. Well, this is, that's what this headmaster is in this text. He's the head servant. He's the head waiter of all the other guys. He's the one that's making sure that the party is flowing and everything is happening and all the food is where it needs to be and all the drink is where it needs to be. And so Jesus says, all right, now that we've, now that we've taken this and done this miracle, take it to him. And they take it to him and he says, everyone serves the good wine first 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So this is what John Philippe says. He says, listen, most of the time, people take the good wine, they put it on the front end, and then after people get a little filled, get a little happy, right, they stop caring what kind of wine you're drinking. Then you, then you just give them all the bad stuff, right? You give them the $5 Walmart stuff after that, you know? Now, first of all, what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus' wine is that good wine that, that deserves to be on the front end. But he's also telling you that Jesus' wine has alcoholic content in it. Because John Philippe doesn't say, man, this tastes just like grape juice. This is awesome. No, he associates it with the, with the good wine. And he says, normally, they put the good wine on the front end, and then when you lose the sermon, then you put the bad wine in. But your wine is the good wine, and you're, you waited to the end, of the end of the festival to give us the good wine. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus' wine knows only one standard. And so no matter how many vats that you gave, he gave, no matter how many jars that he filled, it would only be good because Jesus' wine is always good. And here this wine represents joy, and so Jesus is demonstrating that he is, in fact, for your joy and for my joy. Now, you say, well, sometimes I don't feel like that. Well, we're not talking about just temporary and momentary, and, and we're not just talking about in the moment. We're talking about eternal joy that he is for. And then lastly, Revelation 19, this is just a shadow of things to come. And as I close, I read this to you. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pails of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God, that I fell down, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must, do, you must not do that. I am the fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The reason Jesus is at this wedding is because he will be at the last one. The reason Jesus is at this wedding is because he's showing us that he is for it. And not just for it in the sense that he's going to give us weddings here, but for it in the sense that he is waiting and preparing and building the greatest party ever, ever known. The greatest feast ever, ever known. The greatest banquet ever known, where all of his good gifts will be on full display and none of them will be on display in an abusive or distorted or destructive way. Every single one of them will be used with their original and intended purposes. Every single one of them will bring joy and no sorrow. Every single one of them will bring happiness and no regret. Every single one of them. But the biggest one and the most important one that will be present is himself. 
And those that commit themselves to Jesus Christ, those that, those that walk with Jesus Christ, those that confess their sins and lay down their lives in order that they might take up his cross and follow him, those will be the ones at this wedding. Those will be the ones at this marriage feast. Those will be the ones that will no longer know sorrow and no longer know regret and pain and hurt will finally get a chance to use these good gifts as they were always intended for us to use from, the, from all the way back in the garden. Amen? Can't wait to see that day with you. Can't wait to join you in that day. Amen? Lord, we are so thankful and grateful for the privilege that we have to, to walk in fellowship with you, God. Father, we're thankful that, that you give good gifts and we... And we and Lord, we 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 grieve at our own at our own ability to squander those gifts and, and wreck them and, and 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 do just painful and hurtful things with those with those gifts, Lord. Would you help us, God? Um, would you help us, Lord God, not only appreciate your gifts, but use them in the way that you've called us to use them? Um, Father, would you help us even with our own with, with the gift of faith, Lord? Would you would you help us, Lord God? demonstrate to the world that it is a beautiful thing, our faith in Jesus Christ. It is a good thing and a, and a precious thing and a holy thing. And, and let us use it, Lord God, or, or, or share it in such a way that people see the goodness in it, God, that people see the gift that it really is, Lord. Father, we eagerly anticipate and eagerly await the day that, that, that the great wedding feast, the greatest wedding in the universe takes place. We eagerly await the day, Lord God, that we can join you as your bride and forever be united, Lord God, from eternity to eternity. Lord God, help us go and proclaim the good news of the great wedding to come to those who have yet to receive their invites. Help us to proclaim it, Lord God, and help us, Lord God, to share it. We love you, we thank you, we give you all the praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.